Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for everything. I can't believe it. I uh, This is a good day for me today because I'm sitting across from not only uh, Sarah, Ari, Max, but also a uh, former intern extraordinaire, the only person in history to intern for me two semesters in a row that is jake the snake adams very funny man also works with todd glass on the uh todd glass podcast thank you jake for showing up it's always nice to have you here it's even nicer to know when you're going to be here <laughs> anyway as i like to start these podcasts i like to start with a, uh, a story that is like a six degrees of separation with my guest who today is andrew panay who is a incredible producer of films most notably a lot of ones that you have uh, seen including the mother load wedding crashers which has made probably over 200 million dollars uh, in this country alone so I got a chance to work with Andrew Panay, uh, producing a movie with him and a number of other great men called Employee of the Month, which was a Lionsgate feature, which was Dane Cook's first feature film that he starred in. And it was written by a guy named Greg Coolidge, who was getting his first chance as a director, a wonderful, wonderful man, great director. 
And again, it was Dane's first opportunity to star in a feature film. And when those things are happening, when you're getting your first shot, for those of you in any walk of life, it's a really unique kind of thing because you feel like you're on top of the world. You feel like everything's going for you. And you're finally actualizing one of your dreams because for him, when I first went to his apartment on Fountain and Crescent Heights, the La Fontaine, one of the post-it notes in his office was, I want to star in my own feature film for a major studio. And so once you realize and you put the deal together and it's happening and there's a script that they've identified that they like, there's a script that Dane likes and he's going to be the lead, you naturally assume that everything in your life is going the way you want it to go. And at that time, we also had gotten the commitment for his own HBO special, which was going to be shot at Boston Garden. Two sold-out shows, 38,000 people. And so things were really happening. And when you're putting a film like that together, the studio is spending the money. They're writing the checks. In that particular case, the movie, I believe, was slated to be a 10 maybe $11 million movie, nothing major. In today's standards, that would be in the bottom 1% of all studio film budgets made in history, probably. I remember when I did Half-Bake, that was another one that was $7.7 million, and that was probably, you know, about 10 years earlier. So when they're writing the checks, that means that they have the decision-making. Now, they don't want to tell, you don't want to sit down with Dane Cook and say, hey, uh, buddy, we're giving you this film. You're going to be the guy doing it. You're the lead. But we're writing the checks and every decision that's made, we approve it or it's not going to happen. You know, you would never go in there as a movie studio and say that to an artist because they would probably never want to do anything with you. But as an artist, it's so exciting when somebody's coming to you. You really just want to get the deal done. You want to get a, a large payday. And in Dane's case, it was a seven-figure payday. And it was an exciting moment for him. And I want to share a few things about the process that weren't so exciting. And I want to share something about the process and some things that were exciting. I think the most interesting thing was that the studio, Lionsgate, they'd identified one person who they wanted in the movie more than anybody else besides Dane, and that was Jessica Simpson. Now, Jessica Simpson, you know, wasn't known as a the Meryl Streep of actresses. She wasn't known necessarily as a comedy actress. She wasn't even really known that well as an actress, but what she known as when she did uh, the role of Daisy Duke in Dukes of Hazard, her short time on screen sold a lot of tickets. There was something about her, something about her personality, something about her body, whatever it was that made people talk about her. 
in probably some of the most positive ways than she's ever been talked about before. And it was right on the heels of that. So we set up a dinner uh, with Jessica Simpson and the producers and Dane. And one of the things I'll never forget, and it was such a rare quality, and any man who's listening will know what I'm talking about, and maybe the women listening might not know what I'm talking about, but when she sat down at that table, it was like life changed forever. She was one of those women that, like, when you were next to her, she, like, oozed, like, a sensuality and a sexuality and a personality that was so powerful without hardly even saying a word. She wasn't dressed in a flirtatious way or, like, with a short, short dress or a low-cut thing. She's dressed very conservatively. But there was something about the power that came from how she presented herself and how she showed herself. You could tell that in her personal life, this was somebody who could get anything she wanted from any man that she ever wanted in the world. She could go out with anybody in any situation and literally get anything she wanted in her career if she wanted to make it happen, no matter what. Which was actually true because she was a, a musical artist who was doing really well. She was getting movies. And, and when she sat down at that table, I'll never forget, um, Dane looked over at her because he, he was sitting next to her. And I was sitting next to him, and he looked over at me afterwards when she looked away, and he said this thing that we used to say to each other sometimes when there was a beautiful woman that just entered a room and just took over in a very, very rare case, and we probably said it to ourselves maybe 10 times in 17 years. And he looked over at me. And he said, oh, boy. <laughs> and when he said that, I knew that Jessica Simpson was doing that movie. I knew that he wanted her, and I knew that every single producer at that table wanted her, even though she wasn't somebody who'd done $1,000 million movies, even though that there were hundreds and hundreds of actors and actresses out there that wanted to work, especially young actresses who wanted to work, who wanted to co-lead in a Lionsgate movie, who didn't know one thing or the other and knew that a $10 million, $11 million movie, there wasn't high expectations. And when there's not high expectations, as an actress, you can go in and you can score. You know, Jennifer Lawrence was the daughter of Bill Engvall in a TBS show. Not very high expectations, but you go in and you make your mark, people notice you, and all of a sudden you get your shots. So you don't always have to be in a great show that's considered to be an Emmy-winning show. You know, Tom Hanks was in Bosom Buddies. And there's a lot of examples of things that you can point to, and it was a great opportunity, but she got it.
And during this time, everything was happening with Dane. Great stuff. The bad stuff was his family life was falling apart. His father uh, was sick. His mother was sick. And um, and his mother um, eventually passed away and his father within a year. And during all the time that he probably could have been enjoying so much of his life with the special and the movie... He probably wasn't enjoying it as much. The pressure of getting ready to do a concert special for 38,000 people and having to work on it in wherever we were in New Mexico was, was difficult. But he figured out a way to do it. He made it work and made the movie work. And he dealt with the pressure and he figured it out. And I thought he did... A really wonderful job on the movie for his first movie the movie made 30 million dollars at the box office not a hundred million but in dvd it made like 80 million dollars and it for Lionsgate, it was it was a hugely profitable situation and so he persevered during that time in a big way so that was a part of the story of a movie that was produced by andrew panay that's a, a good thing, a guy who persevered, a woman who went into a meeting and had the power to get whatever she wanted and make it happen. And then there was a story of another guy who I really thought was an amazing guy, a guy who I managed for about a year and who I could probably tell you with all conviction in my heart I believe is a genius, but because of his personal issues and his personal problems, people don't always look at him that way. And that's Andy Dick. And the reason why I say that is that there isn't anybody out there that has ever seen anything on film of Andy Dick's or on television where when that red light of the camera goes on, it's not like magical. I mean, there's something about him that when the camera goes on, he just blows you away with whatever he does in his over-the-top, unique, sort of like a half-gay, half-straight kind of delivery that always seems to win. And in the movie, we knew that he had problems. Andy's always had problems. It's well documented. His problems with substance abuse and alcohol and drama. But I remember when I worked with him on his MTV show, he directed the show. And one thing he did that I was so blown away by. So Andy was the lead in the show. And when you're on camera and you're filming your scene or your close up, whatever you want to call it, you're not looking in the camera. You're looking off in the eye line of whoever it is you're talking to. And so if I'm talking to another actor, whatever, the camera will either be over their shoulder or sometimes it's not, but you still have the eye line away from the camera, either to the right or the left. And the way Andy directed is wherever the actor was or wasn't, where the eye line was, he would put the monitor of his image. 
So as he was delivering his lines, he would be looking at his image of how it was shot in the camera so he could simultaneously direct himself as he was delivering the lines. And he was amazing at it, and he was an incredible guy on the set, even though he was troubled, because he still knew how to lead, even though he was, if he were sitting here, he would say he was a little bit crazy. And we really wanted him for Employee of the Month. We already had Harlan Williams and a bunch of people who were really wonderful, but we really wanted him. We had Dak Shepard. And so we decided we were going to pull the trigger on him. We had a meeting with him and felt that he was ready to be able to do it. And he was doing great. He was doing wonderful. But like all great actors who have problems, uh, as they say in Homicide, about the people who do the murders, sooner or later, they all fuck up. And we were filming at a Costco and Andy did some things that were unbelievably risky, unbelievably intolerable, and shocking. So shocking, in fact, that from that point on, we had to hire a 24-hour security guard to be with him for the rest of the movie. And it was a sign to me where it doesn't matter how great you are or how special a performance you give in whatever job you have. The bottom line is, yes, you'll get a chance. You might get a second chance. You might even get a third chance like somebody like Robert Downey Jr. got. And he took it, ran with it, and stayed the course. But at some point in any profession, you're going to lose your chances. And there's going to come a point in time where people are not going to want to hire you in whatever profession you're in, no matter how great you are. If you don't keep your act together, do the right thing and treat people with respect and treat your job with respect and dignity. And unfortunately, in my opinion, one of the funniest and greatest comedy actors, at least of my time in the business, isn't working today because he didn't do the right thing. And here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! 
people on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am hyped up today. Uh, you will t- I, have, I have so much energy today because I, I get to sit across today from a guy who, like, I have so much uh, respect for, Andrew Panay, and I'm going to introduce him before we talk, but I just want to share something about this guy, since if you are listening to this, um, this guy, every time he came into a room, he, like, had a fashion and a style all of his own, you know? It was always, like, part Axl Rose part Peter Pan. You know, he just always has this way about him that's, like, unbelievable. I've never heard it like that way before. <laughs> he just, he, always wearing some kind of pants where you can tell what kind of religion he is. He's wearing, like, a shirt that Russell Brand wore in some movie, Gotta Get to the Greek. He's always got his hair in a different way that looks like he, you know, it's kind of like this River Phoenix-esque kind of feel to him. Like, the winning formula is always like i give a fuck but i don't give a fuck and i always loved that about him you know he just had his own style and when we worked on employee of the month together he was in a business where there were suits everywhere you went there were suits the higher the meeting went up there was a better suit and a nicer tie and nicer shoes and but he would never change his style. His style never wavered. He never changed who he was or how he was or how he acted or how he dressed. And I love that about him. And I was kind of a guy who was always maligned for wearing cowboy boots and, you know, bell bottom jeans and, you know, clothes from the National Council of Jewish Women sale. And uh, when I met him, I realized, hey, I guess maybe I can do this this way. 
Uh, and it was wonderful. So my guest today, Andrew Pinnell, I'll tell you a little bit about him. So much to say. He was one of three partners at Tapestry Films, which is a Beverly Hills motion picture finance and production company. He's responsible for developing Miramax's She's All That and co-producing Serendipity, starring John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale. He served as executive producer of On the Line, starring Lance Bass and Joey Fatone of NSYNC. He also created the idea and produced Artisan's National Lampoon's Van Wilder, probably one of the most successful National Lampoon movies uh, in history, and really resurrected that franchise. Uh, that was starring Ryan Reynolds and Tara Reid. He's responsible for setting up and developing a movie that means a lot to me, Pay It Forward, which starred Kevin Spacey, Helen Hunt, Haley Joel Osment, and my client of 24 years, Jay Moore. Uh, he recently produced the teen thriller Underclassmen, starring Nick Cannon, and he came up with the idea and produced the acclaimed summer film The Motherlode Wedding Crasher, starring Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn, which grossed over $200 million domestically. Presently, he's working on Hot Tub Time Machine 2, which should be a lot of fun. And I know it will be just as much as this interview. So please welcome, if you will, my guest today, a friend, a confidant, and my fashion partner, Andrew Panay. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I love being here. I love getting the chance to see you. It's so nice. Uh, we had it. We had a nice run with Employee of the Month. So I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you for the kind words. I don't know what to say. I really like the Peter Pan comment. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. I, you know, you know me. I'm not afraid to like, you know, blow it out. In the room, so, <clears throat> no, not I afraid, love. Not, not afraid to walk in with some leather pants. No, I can tell you that. It's the, let me tell you something. The, those leather pants are a nicer quality leather than the couch we're sitting on. Uh, you know what? That is a good point. They're a beautiful lamb, a very nice thin lamb stretched. Beautiful. I just want to sit on you, I think, is what <laughs> I No. I had, I had an evening where that was going on a couple of nights ago. Let's not get into it. I would tell you Anything that it, would be, it was, it was, uh, it was uh, multiple people trying to, you know, wanting to sit on my lap, and, and it was not at a strip club. So. Anything to get an actor in a role. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. <laughs> if you want to sit on my lap, you're welcome to do so. No, but I think the thing, uh, and we're going to talk about so many different things here, but what I like to do uh, is I like to start at the beginning. Uh, okay. So take me back to wherever it was, wherever right. you were growing up, wherever the family situation was, however it was, a month, a year, or wherever yeah. and however it was before the first idea came into your mind mm -hmm. of ever being in the entertainment business. Wow. Well, I grew up in the valley, so I was in a I was a valley boy, like sort of near La Cañada, La Crescenta Valley area, Deep Valley. Um, my dad was a nuclear engineer, and we didn't we knew nothing about there's a there's this whole thing about the valley, and then there was this thing called over the hill. I think it's not as prominent today. I think. Everything's sort of grown together. So when you say right? the valley, you mean the eight one eight area code of, of California, Correct. where people used to joke about the Valley Girls. Yes, a hundred percent. Well, you know how many movies was whether it was Fast Times at, at Ridgemont High or whether it was Valley Girl, right? There was this there was this thing about the way. I, I wouldn't say that 
we were sort of portrayed maybe slightly less sophisticated might be the right way to say it. Those that lived in the valley didn't even know we were being poked fun at, essentially. So your dad's a nuclear yeah. physicist. And you're in an area where people poke fun of people for not being intelligent. I guess that might be a, a way of saying it. I, I, again, that's my perception of what happened when I was 19 years old working for Disney uh, as an intern. I started to. So take you know, me back, okay, though. So, how did you get to that point and wanting to be an intern at Disney and wanting uh, to be in the entertainment it, business? It's funny. I didn't. Well, when I got into college and I was. I couldn't um, add to 10, right? I, I was like, I couldn't multiply. I couldn't add properly. I could barely get through algebra. Uh, that was one indication that maybe, the, the, you know, going the mathematical route or physics route was probably not the right way for me. Uh, but I think I think it really started in college um, where I started to realize I used to play uh piano and the saxophone. I was, a, I was more of an athlete. So oddly... Uh, being an athlete and a musician, actually, there was a correlation between the two. In high school, I again, I didn't understand that there was an artistry to playing the piano and reading music and playing sports. Why I correlate the two is I think emotional movement is very important in both arenas. So I grew up playing sports and reading music, and I think that there's an artistry to playing soccer and baseball where there's a uh, emotional calculation that's happening like this guy's going to move this way I can feel him moving that way he's probably going to throw this kind of pitch he'll probably throw it outside or inside all from emotional movement much like playing the piano so when I got into college everything started started leaning towards well, I like these sounds I like this song I like this movie I uh, but it got more detailed for me than that where I would guess if Bon Jovi and dating myself was going to put out a new song, I could sort of guess where it might land on the charts or how high it would go. And I would come very close every time to, you know, oh, Bad Medicine is going to be number one and stay there for a long time because it had a great hook. So you'd buy the album before it really got on the airwaves and you'd listen to every song and you'd predict what song was Yeah, like which ones they would release. You know, because back in the day, there was, it wasn't about, uh, it was, you know, albums mattered. And so you could, now it's a singles, it's a singles world, but at the time, you know. No, but what's fascinating about what you said and, and the correlation to the business you eventually came into, for those of you who don't know who are listening, uh, music was sort of like the film business where an album would come out on a certain day. I think, uh, I think, was it a Tuesday or a Friday that it normally came out? And you would actually, Tuesday, you would actually be waiting to go to the store to get this album, be the first to right. get this album. You couldn't get it online. You just had to get it in the store. And uh, then you couldn't wait to bring it home because you couldn't play the album in your car. You had to get home to play it on your turntable. And uh, and so that's what you did. And it's the same with movies where they come out at a certain time. And right. that's interesting. So and, Right. Yeah, so, movies would play longer too then. You know, there would be less like in and out, um, less ADD kind of thing. Got it. So what's the next step of how you get into this crazy business? Uh, well, well, I, I started falling in love, like I said, with, with kind of this guessing game I was doing. And a friend of mine got an internship at Disney. And I started to realize that that maybe the world to go into was the sort of film and television world in college. And so I, 
I decided to commit to going that route because the business management side of which I was originally a business major just didn't seem right for me, especially since math was not my favorite subject. Um, I think my brain would wander too much in those classes and I started to dream a lot. So I fell back into an internship at Disney and that's where I caught the bug being on the, the Disney lot. And that's where I learned to take it back around about this thing called over the hill which I didn't understand, which was the separation between Hollywood and the rest of the world. That's what it made me feel like, where it's where when you drive over the hill, which is from the valley over the hill into the city, you what they were really saying was you need to step into the Hollywood world, even though the irony being that Warner Brothers and Disney and all the big lots, Universal, were in the valley. So I thought it was just a really interesting way for people to put it. And that's when I started to understand the separation of Hollywood and the rest of the world. Um, and I think there's something mysterious about that and maybe something that inspired me to kind of find out, to peek around the corner to find out what was what did this mean? What is over the hill? What is this sort of land of Oz that is this world that we live in? And I'm actually sitting in your office overlooking this beautiful <laughs> city, staring at Los Angeles in Century City, which happens to be over the hill. That's correct. And I, I you know? when I started, I knew the places that I wanted to be. And when I went to New York and left Boston, I, I knew for some reason, I don't know what it was, I had heard of the intersection 57th and Broadway. I had heard that's where it happens, that's where you need to be. And so when I went to New York, I found an office at the corner of 57th and Broadway next to the Hard Rock building because I felt that that was the place where I needed to be. And so a lot of times you have those preconceived notions of things. So tell me what the next step is after your internship. What happens? How do you move to the next level? Well, I, you know, went back into school, finished up my film, you know, radio, television, film degree, and I got a job. I couldn't get a job at, back at Disney. There was no, um, uh, there was no availabilities. So I got this job working for a independent music company that used to do tracking for, uh, for albums. And what that means is that we were calling up record stores because at the time there was no sound scan, which basically, you know, in, in sound scan for those listening, you know, nowadays people, they just, you know, now it, it even goes past sound scan now it's just computerized you just you click on a thing and you track what the song is doing it's 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 you know you can actually it's tangible but back in the day back then it was just us making phone calls finding out how the album was doing and writing it down on a piece of paper and letting the record labels know that it was doing well or not well but it, it's not what i wanted to do but it was in entertainment so i really I just I still loved being around a entertainment type company, even though it was it was more uh, almost telemarketing, so to speak. Then I got a phone call out of nowhere to to come and work at Disney for the president of production at the time, physical production, Bruce Hendricks. I said, "Sure, what are the hours?" And they were like, "It's from you know ten till eight. And I was like, "Ten till eight? That's terrible." I was like that's going to ruin my life. You know, I'm 23 years old thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to work from 10 to eight. I'm, I'm not going to have a life N not knowing that I would be stepping into a 24 hour job for the rest of my life. Less time for people to sit on your lap. Yes. Now, now I get, I, I make time for, for that, for lap sitting. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I, I, so I started my journey, uh, working for Bruce Hendricks, rolling calls, um, making cappuccinos, uh, working, answering phones and, and trying to learn what in the world it, it goes on in this business. I think this is important for all yeah. those who are listening, who want to get some kind of an entrance into this business or any business. And you just, as they say, and many of my guests have said, you have to find an affiliation. The first thing you do, you have to find something, some place, some company to plant your flag. But the amazing thing is, once you plant your flag in that job, if you were to break it down into a 100% pie of all the work you do, how much is relevant to the business and how much is relevant to personal tasks like getting coffee and Frappuccino and going to Starbucks and uh, making sure the conference room has water in it. If you were to say your first, let's say, three months to six months in that job, what percentage of the work you did was actually uh, related to business? I mean, probably 25%, probably. And, and the thing about this, yeah. which is so amazing about you, which you're going to talk about, is that you don't seem like the kind of guy who would ever accept the fact that 25% was business. So I would imagine what you did was work longer hours, raising the percentage of the time that you could figure out how to learn more about the business. I don't think it's ever stopped. I still don't look at, I look at myself in the mirror in my career, regardless of Wedding Crashers or Echo coming out in a minute or Hot Tub or whatever the movies I'm doing and creating. I, I still think that my job is like maybe 50% the other stuff and 50% the creating and the talent. I, I don't think it ever goes away. Barry, my guess is you still feel the same. I mean, whether I get a latte for my movie star now, I, I will do that to this day because it never ends. And I think for me, I always looked at my life. It's first of all, it's super humbling a to be here. And I thank you for that. I, you know, to start being at at a place in my career where I get to do interviews about how I got here is such an honor, but also, you know, I still, it's weird to be having this kind of interview and get to this place in my career because I don't feel like I'm there. And where however many hit movies or failures or whatever I've had here and there and all the things, it feels like, and I'm sure you feel the same way you ask any successful person in the film business, what success? You know, it's always about the next thing. So I think the thing that I've learned the most from the very first day, day one, is it's always going to be humbling. So you never feel you're there, which is what makes it exciting. What's probably the motivation for everybody to get up in the morning. I still, I feel... I feel content, but, but I did then, um, but never satisfied, you know, getting a cappuccino was about making the cappuccino great and getting it on time, you know, not about, and just like delivering a cappuccino to my actor. Now, the difference now is like guessing when my actor might want the cappuccino. And, and so what I, what I got to learn as an assistant, I think then was it's not about the cappuccino. It's about performance. And I think that for my colleagues that I was working with and for the people I was working for, they looked at it like, no, they need a cappuccino to get a little bit of a caffeine rush so they could kick butt in the next two meetings. It was all about performance and nothing is not about performance in the film business. So if it's about 
getting jelly bellies for your actor or for your co-producer. It's because they want to feel good for a few minutes before they get up on stage. Everything has a purpose, right? I think the thing is that I, I try to instill in my assistants now is nobody's an assistant. I'm an assistant. I'm just glorified. I'm just a sexier version, maybe physically, maybe career-wise, however you want to put it. But it, meaning that if you have to look at everything as um, as having sex appeal, and I looked at it that way when I was a young guy coming up in the business, that everything mattered and it had to be awesome, Right. And then that dovetailed into my producing because producing is just about getting ahead of things. So I never tell my assistants that it doesn't mean something. If there's a method to the madness, you know, if I need something right that moment, they have no idea how that's going to domino in the rest of the day. If I, I need a candy cane, it's Christmas time. I need the candy cane and I need it now. I don't understand why Andrew needs a candy cane. It just seems like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He wants his candy cane. Well, guess what? The candy cane was going to be for an actor, actor's child who I was going to see, who I wanted to give a candy cane to, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to introduce myself and have, and have, a, and be in, and be loving to this, this, this family that I'm going to be with for the next six months, because that's the right thing to do. It's Christmas time. So everything has a reason. Um, and, and, uh, you know, if it's gassing the car, it's like, it's no different than we better get the, the latest script to me right now because if we don't have the latest draft then we're not going to get the scene done properly but it's no different to making sure that there's gas in the car so we can get to set which is just as important you know yeah i think that one of the so, things that that's lost out there for a lot of people who are starting in any business is the importance of making the person who you're working with feel safe and it's all about that and you you mentioned the sex appeal thing and I've talked about this a few times, but I, I think it's a it's a great metaphor because to me, it's all about making your boss or the people you work with feel safe. So getting the candy cane took anxiety off of you because you had a nice gesture in your heart you wanted to do for this person. And that was going to make you feel good. And if your assistant got it done for you without thinking about it seven times or you texting them about it five times, then you felt safer. And in the sex appeal sense, if you'll oblige me to go one step yeah. very, mm -hmm. very farther here, mm -hmm. I always say that you have to treat the business. If Let's just take it because we are two guys sitting here. I'm not going to go the female perspective, but I'll just take the guy perspective. Sorry, Sarah. Sarah's surrounded by five men here. A lot so. of guys. A lot of, lot, of, lot of testosterone in this room. So in its most basic sense, the business is like, what does it take to meet a woman for the first time, get her to go out with you, get her to come home with you, get her to take off all of her clothes, mm -hmm. Get her to sleep with you in positions not found in nature <laughs> after she sat on your lap in those pants and then hug you and put her clothes back on mm -hmm. and walk off at mm -hmm. some point in time. Mm -hmm. In order to get that woman mm -hmm. to do that, she has to feel safe. Yes. She has to feel like you're not an axe murderer. Mm -hmm. Like you're a guy who made her feel comfortable and made her feel like a million bucks 
and made it so she wasn't stressed out. And during that time that you were with her, time stood still. She didn't think about her bills or her car breaking mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. or her asshole boyfriend that was being disrespectful <laughs> to her. All she thought about was she was lost in the moments and the moments and the hours with you because you took away all of her stress, all of her anxiety, and you made her feel like a million bucks. And if you're an assistant out there or somebody working on a set or if you're a producer working with a, a star in a movie, or it doesn't matter if you're in a law firm and you have partners you're working with or whatever, it's all about making everyone feel safe. And that's what you did, and that's what you're training your assistants to do right. as well. That's right. That's and a great way to put it. Yeah, and a lot of times, you know, for me and all the people sitting here know how frustrated I get because I believe in everybody who's uh, sitting in front of me. But there's times when there's things that happen that I don't understand and I get frustrated about and I want a solution to the problem. And if the solution doesn't come at the time when I want it to come, it's stressful. And I wonder, like, what is it that needs to happen to make it happen? Mm -hmm. And why isn't it happening? Mm -hmm. And why can't it happen in the time that I want it to happen? And it puts stress on the relationship, even though I've always felt like you do when I sit across from these people. I don't feel like I'm their boss. I never have. I never. I. I. I don't think I've ever pulled that card where I'm like, you, know, you work for me, and like I. Right. I feel like a peer. Um. But I know that sometimes it probably doesn't right. come across right. that way. Right. But that's the way I feel, and if I, you know, when I. But that's think why it, you still have a career. Let us, that, that's that's the truth. Well, hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, I'll still have one. <laughs> but I mean, but one of the things I, I love when Sarah tells me things, when she says, look, I, I'd like to get a job in production or do this at some point in time, and I want to move into this level of something. And she talks about the kind of people she will be working with. And I must admit, it makes me feel good when I leave after she has the conversation because she says, I don't know if I'm going to find another person like you who's not going to yell at me or throw a stapler at me or make me go get coffee all the time or do whatever. I mean, it's like I just I don't you know, so I, I am concerned about people going out there because you're going to deal with different people in life, just like when you're in high school or college you meet people. Some people are so kind and so wonderful and they just are so generous and other people are just rude or they don't know how to talk to people. And you have to know how to navigate with people because you have to understand that they don't know. They, the asshole does not always know he's an asshole. The person who sends the email that reads really badly does not know that he created that situation most situations as a producer or any business you're in with people that are negative no one very few people have a premeditated thing like okay let me figure out what to write or what to say at this moment to completely fuck up this guy's day that's not what happens i can even assure you even roseanne barr 
on the show Roseanne, when where there was all the turmoil and everything like that, in her heart, I know that she believed, hey, you know, I did it my way. I got to number one. I'm number one. America spoke. They don't know what happens behind the scenes here. My interest is having the best show possible. And if it means I have to fire 13 people to get the show I want, then I'm going to do it. And you know something? After I fired him, I went to number one and I stayed number one. And it's not, it's not nothing personal. I'm just trying to be the best I can mm -hmm. be. Mm -hmm. She's not sitting around all night thinking to herself, God, man. I can't wait to fuck that person up. I know she's sitting around writing the list of people who she's going to fire, but I don't think she wants to, like, make them homeless and damage their careers. So keep going with your trajectory. What's the first thing you get involved with that's 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 involved in, in actually where you say, God, I'd like to I'd like to produce films. Wow. Uh, I guess when I when I uh, I left the. Uh, physical production of Disney and I went to Touchstone Pictures at the time which was alive and kicking at the time. And who were the head executives you know, of Touchstone that, then? Uh, that was uh, Donald DeLine. Of course. So Donald was the president and I think I think at the time David Vogel was the president of Walt Disney Pictures, yep. right? And I worked for Christy Callahan who was an executive at the time at Touchstone. And so I, I started to like the world. Uh, I started running around with Greg Silverman, who's now the president of Warner Brothers. We were we were best friends, and we we used to at the time, you know, there wasn't sort of the whole email chain thing. We would pass around flyers that we were going to have a party, and we would have these mixers basically <laughs> at various bars and restaurants. Um, they still have lots of mixers. Do they still have lots of mixers? Yeah. But the mixers were fun because we didn't, there was no such thing. It was an open bar like Greg and I, we didn't have the money. So we were just, it was just, let's just go meet at this one place and like hang out together. Tell our audience what the so. purpose in your mind of a mixer was. You know, I, I think it was what, it was, it was all about networking. I think the purpose was, well, it was twofold. It was like, we're going to go and have a good time. You know, there was cute girls there. There was like um, good energy. It was fun. It was young Hollywood, you know, and it was super positive, by the way. It was never anything negative. It was all about having a great time. That was the first thing. And the second thing was like you knew you were going to grow up with these people. Like this was the way to grow with your colleagues who would go off and because there were a lot of agency assistants and eight assistants to big studio executives and the studio presidents and they would all graduate. It was like a graduating class. Like we were below freshmen. We were in junior high and we were trying to get into the major leagues and we were the farm system. That's how I look at it. And so we were out there um, trying to find our place into the majors. And now, and then, you know, you hope that you would get a chance to play in the major leagues. Um, and then at that point you knew that once you got in the major leagues, it was like, would you become an all-star? And you know how hard that is. And so people get weeded out and they drop back down to the farm system or have to leave the, the majors or so at the time, you know, I understood that there was a, I understood that there was a farm system. I didn't really, I look back now and, and understand it a lot more. I think then I had an inkling that I was supposed to be in this system. Um, I think that's what's beautiful about Hollywood is that, it kind of does have a farm system and it's it's not exactly it's not exactly uh talked about in the way I'm breaking it down but 
uh, there is an unspoken system, which is the assistants communicating with one another and growing together. It's pretty exciting to think about a lot of my assistant friends are heads of agencies or heads of studios or big producers um, or big writers or big TV writers or or big stars, big movie stars. Well, that's one of the things yeah. that I notice and you can tell somebody's so. going to go somewhere or not as an assistant in any business. Because like one of the things, uh, and you know, Sarah also produces this thing as well, but one of the things I notice is like Sarah is always seems to be going out to a different thing or to, to network or do whatever. And there was a time where she didn't as much. But then when the mindset turned around and said, okay, you know, every hour that I have is an hour that's valuable and something that I should be able to do. And so, you know, the assistants who are going to get to the next level, who are the ones that are out every night at a different place. And it costs money. If you're a woman, sometimes it doesn't cost as much money because you can be in a position where sometimes people pay for your drinks and but nobody's going to pay for your drinks as a guy. Uh, so if you're a guy, it's very expensive because not only are you paying for yourself, but you're oftentimes paying for uh, the female assistants who come that you meet there. But the point being is like being an assistant is almost like relating to being a stand-up comic. If you're a stand-up comic and you are not in a club every night, then get the fuck out of the business. Just get out of the business. Don't even just, just the business doesn't want you. It doesn't need you and get the fuck out. Because as Neil Brennan would say, who created Chappelle show with Dave Chappelle, he said, nothing in my career has ever happened to me that it hasn't happened while being in a comedy club. Because there's always people there. You're networking, you're seeing, you're observing, you're studying greatness. You get a chance to imitate greatness and you get a chance to become great. And then you get to work out your stuff too. And people are in the room and they see what you're doing. They see your progress. They see your failings, but they see you. They know you. They get to know you and you move on. Like you said, there's an affiliation between that group of people. And those assistants, if you're not going out almost every night with something related to the business you're in, I too will say, get the fuck out. Yeah, you have your weekends, enjoy your weekends and your days and go to the beach and do whatever. But at night, find something in your craft to go to or be around or hang around anybody in that business and you'll get where you want to go. It's, 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 and if you're an actor, you know, there's tons of plays you can see, theater stuff you can see. And if you're not doing that, you can be at home and spend an hour or two mm. putting yourself on tape, doing a monologue, whatever it is. You have to mm -hmm. do that. And that's what you did. Yeah. No, there's no such thing as um, an easy road. I mean, all the cliches fall down, get back up. I, you know, it, it, it's all that. And when it comes to Hollywood, it's double it all. Double it. Because the amount, whatever the cliche is, just amplify it. Because I think that we're in a town where people are migrating. They're coming from all over the world. This isn't, this isn't a homegrown uh, bit crap. This is, and from people that grew up here on top of the people that are all coming from all around the world, the best of the best are coming to this one little tiny place called Hollywood to make it happen. So I used to say this when I was in a sense, and I tell my assistants this now, or anybody that works for me, works with me, when you're not working, someone else is. Just remember that. When you're not looking for the next best thing, someone else is looking for the next best thing. 
So just know that when you take a time out, you have to accept that you are now not moving forward in your career. Because in Hollywood, you could you can move your career forward um, in ways there because there are no rules. So you can be moving forward by going to a Dodger game with one of your colleagues that works for another company. You can move your career forward by having dinner with um, with uh, you know with with the assistant to so and so. You could be growing your career by being at the bowling alley. Uh, and next to you playing in the game next to you is an actor that really takes a liking to you that happens to have a TV show. Maybe he's the fourth lead in three years from now. He's the lead of some other show. So I, I don't think it's about, um, I don't think it's about sort of looking for a shortcut by, you know, spending time with someone that you think can push your career forward. I think it's different than that. I think it's about staying within yourself, knowing you have your own talent, finding what it is that you're good at, but making sure you're in a position to meet enough people to where you can then take advantage of your talent. No one's going to give you uh, anything, but when you're having a dinner with someone and you, you know, come up with an idea for a movie, uh, you could, for whatever reason, that particular night, you're out with a particular type of crowd and you pitch an idea to a particular person who happens to be uh, going to a different environment that can then take your idea and run with it. So it's, you're right. I mean, I completely agree. I think it's about giving yourself the opportunity to win. Um, in order to do that, you have to sort of be out. And like you said, it doesn't necessarily have to be calculated. Matter of fact, I would say it's opposite. I would say it's about being true, being genuine, um, being in the moment, but allowing yourself to be in environments where you actually can meet people. Uh, it's an exhausting thing. I, I don't always find it particularly that fun. I think as your career goes, you can, uh, you as you grow through the business, you can pick and choose a little bit more about where you think your energies need to be. Um, and as, as long, again, and, I, and I'll say this again, as long as I think you come from a very genuine place, I think people can, will be really responsive. I think that you always have to bring something to the table uh, and never expect that it'll be handed to you. But if you're doing the work at home uh, as an artist, which is whether it is, whether you're a painter or you're a writer or you're a stand-up comic, if you're doing the work, which is what you mean by being in a comedy club every night, they're doing the work to get up on stage. You can't just get up there without doing the work. So, but giving yourself an opportunity to be seen so you can share your work is half the battle, maybe more. Um, so I feel like for me, I, it was about staying in the system, but then once you get to a certain place, the system asks you to deliver. So the question is, are you also ready to deliver when you're asked to starting you know be the starting pitcher tonight or come in for an inning are you prepared to are you prepared to throw uh are you prepared to are you prepared to bring the heat for me when i left touchstone to get my little executive job a baby executive job at tapestry uh right before i got that job i did a short film with greg silverman called on the line and at that point which then got made later, years later with NSYNC. But at the time, I was working with my buddy, Greg Silverman. I was doing a short film. I was sleeping on the sofa at Tapestry Films when I got the new job. I would sleep on the sofa because I'd get up at four in the morning and I'd bring food to the crew because I had this job and I was producing this, this, this short and doing the job. And I had to sort of, so at the time, it's like I also took a course at UCLA Extension, learning how to read scripts and how to break them down. So I was just ready 
when I got my job at Tapestry, I was just ready to perform for them when they asked and called upon me to find great writers or to create great ideas. And what they wanted me to do, and I owe a lot to those guys, is just create stories. Go and create. I had no idea if I had it in me or not. Was I trained? Was I ready? Was I prepared? And I, whether I backed into it or whether I just happened to be ready by accident or whether it was some natural talent or maybe a combination of a bunch of things, um, I then started to create this, 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 these little stories that started finding their way to, um, to becoming a starting pitcher, so to speak. You kind of have to wait your turn. So that's kind of my, like the, the, the truncated version of my journey is, you know, getting this job and opportunity to work. Uh, for Tapestry uh, as a baby, baby executive. Um, and when my number was called, I was ready. And, you know, there were a lot of people who came through the doors of Tapestry. Yeah. A lot of assistants, a lot of development people, a lot of people before you, Andrew, a lot of people after you. <laughs> a lot of people didn't sleep on the couch. A lot of people didn't get up at four o'clock in the morning. A lot of people didn't go and take classes at wherever UCLA to learn how to break down scripts. A lot of people didn't put the work in. And a lot of people didn't become a partner at Tapestry. But you did. You worked your way up. You impressed them. And above all, guess what? You made them feel safe safe enough to tap you and bring you on as one of their own how do you feel you got to the stage and moved up in the company from point to point to point knowing that there were a whole group of people who were coming in and out of the company like you who were getting paid six dollars in a bucket of chicken and you know reading the scripts that they threw out and getting dry cleaning doing whatever how did you make your mark and move up the ladder there when all the other people who were coming in and out of there didn't? But that's a great question because I, yes, there were people coming in and out and leaving and coming and going. I think one of the things that I figured out in an early age, even though um, it's not something I don't think you can teach in school, which is just to keep your head down and not look around. I think that there's always somebody who's more successful better looking, cuter, funnier, faster, richer, all those things, right? <laughs> so that was the last thing. I tried not to look up. I try not to look up and just focus on myself. And I think what I what I realized is that Tapestry gave me such a great platform to perform. What I loved about working with the guys was I they really did teach me that um, I mean, they were great teachers, but one of the things that they taught me... Could you me, mention the names yeah, of all the, uh, the partners? P Peter Abrams and Robert uh, Levy. They were two great mentors, and they sort of taught me that we were on an island. And then I realized that we're all on an island, that even if you're a studio president, you know, as much as you're part of a corporation and a team, at the end of the day, really all you have is your creative spirit and your own voice. Those guys taught me at a young age that really it's it's about your voice and it does take a village to to you know build a film it it isn't it's not one person show but but it does usually start from one person's voice and begin from there and at that point I started to realize that 
because I was young and no one would talk to me in the business, agents-wise, I had enough of a roof over my head, thanks to those guys, thanks to Peter and Robert, that I was able to get junior agents on the phone. And that was just enough for me to make things happen. At that point, I just started to create my own concepts because, once again, I wasn't um, a brand or I wasn't an, uh, didn't have any name value to... There was no reason to give me... Uh, anything of star power scripts or anything that had any kind of brand attached to it. So I had to create my own and hope and hoping that the concepts and the brands were strong enough just from concept alone, that it would find its way up the ladder to whatever movie star or a strong enough concept to open on its own. And that's how I started you know, with, with the idea that, okay, I have nothing. So let's start with that. All right, so you're calling the junior agents at William Morris and Endeavor mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. who are now combined, obviously, William Morris Endeavor at UTA, um, you know, CAA. Gosh, Paradigm, I Paradigm. think, at the time. I'm trying to think uh, of what I, There was Broder Curlin at the Broder time. Broder Curlin, who's yeah. a tremendous uh, literary agency, yeah. one of the best. So you're calling the junior agents. You identify them. But you just said you are coming up with your own concepts. Mm-hmm. If you're calling a literary agent, normally you're calling them mm-hmm. to find out what writers they have who mm-hmm. have a script that they can mm-hmm. blow the dust off of that's extraordinary that you can look at. You're not calling a literary agent and bro- Broder saying, hey, I have this great concept. Who do you have to write it for me? They're not. I don't think they're going to listen to you at that point. They're going to want to sell their script, correct? So how did you... Right. That's very you know, insightful. I, I will Sorry say to be insightful. No, it was very insightful. <laughs> it's very true. But I'll tell you what I, where I broke some of the barriers was I developed such great relationship with these junior agents that they would give me their junior writers that had great voices. So what I started to do was like, I created the best concept I could possibly have and work with brand new baby writers that were not selling their scripts yet and had just come out of the gate with they that also had great voices. So I would find somebody who, now this is where it gets a little tricky and hard to teach. I would have a lunch or a dinner with a writer and I still do it to this day. And I would just feel, does this person have the same rhythms that I feel and hear and see in my head and that I can feel in my soul? And if we would match, kind of like dating. And tell our audience how you can assess when you sit across from somebody who writes screenplays that they're your sensibility when when you write a screenplay. It's, you know, uh, in capital letters, uh, Andrew Panay and Barry Katz sit on a couch with two microphones, dressed one dressed hiply, one dressed in $10 worth of clothing. Uh, <laughs> about to carry on their conversation. Andrew, how do you do, you know, so how right. do you how do you assess when you're sitting across from somebody eating with chopsticks talking about where they spent the 4th of July uh, that they have the sensibility of writing? I know dating, you know, I know what you're saying, you got to get along with There's the person, soul, but you can right. get along with a person sure. really well and they can be sure. a shitty writer. Right. Well, the thing is, at the time, I was more into comedy. So, uh I mean, I still am doing predominantly comedies, but so rhythmically, I could tell just from the conversation if, if number one, they had sort of a strong presence. Um, I guess it's very simple. If they could sell me at the table off their personality and their enthusiasm and getting a grip of the idea that I knew they could sell in a room, were they engaging and keeping me interested 
Was I, did I like the sound of their voice? Do I like their sense of humor? Do I enjoy the warmth of the company? Because that is exactly how an executive is going to feel when they hear your idea. Now that's the trick. The trick is how do you engage an executive who is listening to 50 pitches a day, 50,000 phone calls, and how are you not going to bore them to tears in 10 minutes? I mean, it's very difficult. A 10 minute, 10, 15 minutes of dead silence for an executive just sitting and listening to a pitch or a story is, is it feels like two hours long. It's kind of like my cold open. A little bit. <laughs> well, you're actually quite engaging. All right. Um, I can listen to you forever. Thanks, but, but, but you have great, but there you go. The, I, but you have great rhythm. So anybody who has a good voice or great rhythm, you, that is not something you can teach. For example, why is Dane Cook, Dane Cook? You know, listen, I think he's really funny, but there's something else, right? When I watch him on the special or he's got a tone, they just like him. They like his tone. He's got a warmth. He can be dirty, but there's a warmth. He feels like every man. And it's kind of like right? this thing. If you listen to certain stand-up comedians, which I'm sure you have, what's always fascinating is there are certain African-American comedians who have the kind of rhythm when they tell a story, they kind of talk like a preacher right. and it's this pause and, and you're like... What's coming next? And right. you just like you, you can't you, teach what Chris Rock does, right? Yeah. Like you can't teach. That's the thing that so you as a you know th- this 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 innovator of of the guys that you've broken in your career. That would be me, like me asking you, Barry, why you picked Dane Cook. How did you curate Bank? That is a very difficult question to answer. And it's so weird that you say that because maybe it's the same with you and these writers. And for him, and a lot of people I don't think know this story, I had heard of him in Boston as a young, young, young comedian, not making any money at all. He was uh, part of an improv troupe called Al and the Monkeys, and there weren't a lot of improv troops back then, and he was part of an improv troupe with a guy named Robert Kelly, who has a very popular podcast, a very talented comedian, Al Ducharme, who's also a great comedian, and and then they broke off on their own, and they, there was no money, and he was coming to New York uh, to do a taping at Caroline's Comedy Club just for like seven minutes, and he came in and introduced himself in my office, and I shook his hand. And I just felt something from him. And it was weird because he was a guy who was awkward, shy. He had a speech impediment. And um, and I said, I come down to Caroline's. Turns out they put him on first. I never saw him perform. But I just knew that I wanted to work with him. And I thought there was something about him that could become huge. And maybe it's what you feel when you're sitting across from these writers. Yeah, I mean, it's a tone. Just like, you know, you there are some singers that break huge in the top 40 community, right? These pop singers. And you, you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, is, is she or he that talented? It's a tone. It doesn't matter. It's a tone that hits people that makes them feel whether they're, you know, there, there are artists, right. That, you know, are some of the greatest songwriters and made a quarter of the money of some of the pop singers are today. But the thing is, it's not about, um, the gift of writing sometimes, or the, it's really just a tonality that makes things happen. I think, yeah, with writers, it's the same. I, I can't explain it so uh, sometimes. Was, so what was the first idea that you dreamed up in your mind that you felt 
could be a great movie that hadn't been done before that you were pitching to young writers? Well, the first idea, funny, is, um, well, the first idea that I worked on that I collaborated with was, was She's All That. That was the first thing. And that She's All That at the time uh, was, you know, I found this writer, Lee Fleming, I mean, three weeks into the job, I think, and I loved his tones. Again, I only read 11 pages, and my boss at the time, Jennifer Gibgott, or now Gibgott, then Shankman, she was like, what are you doing over there in your, in the, in your office? So I was laughing hysterically. It was a script called Getting Over Alice, and then that got made, it actually got made afterwards called Get Over It. Um, and Getting Over Alice was so funny. She goes, what are you doing in there? It was only three weeks into the job. Again, a tonality thing. I hadn't, I mean, gosh, I remember when I had my job. I, I don't even think I, you know, at that point, I may have read 20 scripts my entire career. <laughs> so I just had the giggles, uh, again, rhythmically. Um, so just to show you how how much of, of it is the art of the ear and just understanding of rhythms. Well, first of all, how many times in your career have you actually sat up until this yeah. moment? Yeah. Have you actually sat in your office and laughed hysterically at any screenplay? You've read? Probably I, I, <laughs> maybe five times, five times, maybe five times in, in wedding crashers was another one. I wedding crashers when the first draft came in, I, I was crying hysterically in my car before I went into a dinner, I remember, and, and Peter Abrams and I were calling each other. I'm like, are you laughing as hard as I am? Is this, this the most ridiculous uh, movie uh, we've ever like been involved with You know, at the time? But then I, then I, I actually, the first idea I, I really sold that was cleanly mine was something called, I think we, we called it Fear of the Reaper. But really what it was, was back in the day when Scream was the hip, fat, hip, cool thing. I came up with this movie. It was based off Not Scary Farm. I was driving in the car and I heard this ad for Not Scary Farm and I thought, oh. A parody they, on Not Scary they, Farm. They, exactly. They, I just thought they would, they'd never done sort of a scream of the evening of not of not scary farm where people are dying, but you can't tell. And it, a, a reaper is killing people, but you can't tell what's real, what's not. Uh, and I remember selling that to touchstone pictures, Disney, ironically, Donald DeLine at the time relationships, relationships. And don't, where did I come from? I came from touchstone to tapestry. And who did I sell my first pitch to my old boss, my first boss or second boss. So, relationships yeah, there you go beautiful so okay so you're so you're starting to create things that are get and so these things yeah. that you're working with these young writers and now they're getting made yeah through your company and so that gets done and they realize here's a young guy who gets it done who makes it happen now when you're going out to sell these things to the studios that you're going to align with because i don't think tapestry could do anything alone because they needed the alliance of Correct. a studio to that. Uh, just so you guys know out there, because I think it's important, and Andrew will probably elaborate on it more. There's a lot of uh, production companies out there that do, uh, uh, or mini studios, as you'd call them, that produce films. They put all the packages together. They put everything together. But the issue, even after they put it together, is... It's got to be distributed. It's got to be distributed through the theaters in your town, uh, in the United States, and all around the world. And there, unfortunately, are a very, very select few companies that have the cloud to be able to move movies through movie theaters. 
So you have to do these alliances with these people and make your deals with these people. Sometimes your deal, and I don't know if this was true with Tapestry, is aligned with just one studio that, that goes into theaters. Other times you're an independent and you can do it through anybody. Uh, explain how it worked with Tapestry. and, and uh, I think at the time we had multiple deals. One time we, uh, for a while we were with Miramax, then we were with Fox, and then I think we were... Uh, and then it was just Miramax and Fox, I think, for all the years I was there. Now, without uh, uh, without divulging any trade secrets, so our audience knows, because I think this is important, because a lot of people don't really understand this world, and 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 you do. So we're gonna we're gonna go, if you don't mind, take a slight detour at this point into the world of after the film is made, um, the deal that you make aligning yourself with this company probably before like let's say when you do wedding crashers i imagine the first time you read wedding crashers or you do whatever it is you do have your company does have a deal with something now wedding crashers was through which company well that ironically that was with new line got it got mm -hmm. it which is don which was donald the line again at the time or no donald was at paramount at that time i think this was uh richard brenner and kale boyder at the time and toby emright got it yeah and so anyway so so you go and you have your you're, you're putting this film together right and then you go out into the town and say listen, this is what we have. This is what we're going forward. Uh, we got this going. Now, sometimes, again, if we can just digress a little more, sometimes that studio bringing like New Line can provide all the financing for the film. Sometimes there's people out there in the world who have film funds, uh, like your recent partner in Echo, Ryan Cavanaugh, who's right. a guy who just has a fund of, a kajillion dollars and just you know rolls off a few bills and says here you go we're doing this and whatever so it depends there's all different incarnations of the financing the money so just know so that can go either way like a company like tapestry could have no money they put forward and and then they go to new line and new line funds the whole thing and then they become partners in it possibly hopefully i would hope 50 50 partners but sometimes it's a more unfavorable deal. Sometimes it's a, a a better deal. And so take us through how that works in in movies going into the theaters. How does New Line, let's say, let's take Wedding Crashers. How do they decide? You know how you see in the paper, you see, uh, you know, Wedding Crashers is in 2,568 theaters uh, opening up, whatever. Dawn of the Dead in 2,027 theaters. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean in 4,000, whatever. How does a company like New Line clear with your company, Tapestry, clear the theaters, pick the date, and tell our audience how the finances work for the movie theaters in week one, week two, week three, week four, because I think that's something that's lost and a lot of our audience don't know that. And you're a guy who's the perfect guy to explain it. The, well, as far as, you know, when New Line, let's say, for example, being an independent um, producer at the time, I think we had a deal with Miramax. Miramax, um, uh, I think had something similar to Wedding Crashers. And so they ended up allowing us to sell it to New Line. At that time, you know, New Line buys the property and they own it outright at that point where we are now the 
sole producers on the project and they finance the movie and they make they have a deal got um, it so mm-hmm. so just so i want to be clear yeah so in that deal yeah they you develop the movie you have it put together you've put a budget together what you think it would be obviously if you hire certain actors it could be more money or whatever right. but you have your budget and whatever they write you a check for the property to just end and a percentage of the back end profits you right. get uh, after they write you the check. And that can be negotiated in anything from 25% to 50% if you're lucky. Right. Okay. So they write that check and out of that check, it goes directly into the company and your deal is structured to whereby you're involved with your company to yeah. where you're going to make a percentage of that. And the owners of the tapestry are going to make a percentage of that. Okay. So the new line goes and they made their investment X amount of dollars in this thing. Mm-hmm. And now how do they clear all the theaters and how is it determined with this product that no theater has ever seen before except for a trailer of something. How do they get it cleared in so many places and what's the financial deal at the movie theaters? Well, I think it it varies per movie, not necessarily the financial deal. I think there's a set structure, but I think in terms of what movie gets what kind of love uh, from the movie theater chains, I think it just depends on a lot of different things. So. And let's take Wedding Crash, for example. So there was Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson and Christopher Walken and Jane Seymour. And there was enough of a cast, obviously, that uh, gives the movie a certain amount of clout. But really just comes down to the relationship between the studios and the movie theater chains. So in the exhibitors. So New Line's an old school, you know, they've been around a long time. They have a lot of credibility. They released at the time, you know, they had Lord of the Rings and um, Austin Powers. And they they had they were the biggest mini major at the time. So they're very the theater chains were very supportive of New Line's movies entering to the marketplace. How things get determined usually is you test the movie when you're finished with your first cuts. And you and I have been through this together already. <laughs> it's probably the worst night of your career well, of any filmmaker. Why don't really. you tell our audience what a test, what a test movie screening is? is. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what's more important, your opening night of your movie in real theaters or your test screening nights. Uh, well, what, what testing is all about is once you finish with your movie, usually the filmmakers get a... Oh, you're a, a one-time shot to show the studio in front of a recruited test screening audience. So we pick a city outside of Los Angeles, and what they'll do is they'll recruit 400, 450, uh, you know, movie-going audience lovers to come see your movie blind off a log line and your cast. So for Wedding Crashers, it was come see two guys crash weddings to meet girls starring Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn. Okay. They have no idea what they're walking into. Oh, rated R, by the way. So we recruit the audience and, you know, this is your, your, your life is on the line, so to speak, right? So you're, you've worked for two years of your life, maybe. And here it comes down to one evening where you're going to test this film in front of a recruited audience of 400 people who have no idea what they're about to see and absolutely really have, you know, absolutely no, uh, uh, there's no tip off of the tone or anything else because they haven't seen trailers. Do you pay the audience? Do I pay them? Oh, I wish. I wish I could. I would if I could. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it's a it's an honest recruit with a a real number. So what what happens in these recruit in these test screenings is you screen the movie and you basically get a grade. 
And the audience that's sitting in, in the gets uh, a form that's handed out to each person and they start grading you. And it's it's a really interesting system, number system, where they, the studio determines from the numbers how good your film really is or how good your film can be or how bad it is. So that that is the night of end all be all where you get this piece of paper handed to you after your movie plays <laughs> that'll determine y- your fate for the probably the right re- if you feel at that time your rest your your whole life is based off of one piece of paper uh off of these 400 people that could have just had a bad night you know uh so it's 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 uh now wedding crashers thankfully was one of those nights where you never forget where the numbers were high the audiences was la- the audience was laughing and the studio was i think incredibly impressed with our first cut at that point your life gets easier the studio starts to determine what kind of movie they really have the studio starts to determine if the movie's going to run and play well the studio is going to determine when a movie's coming out whether it's a summer film or a movie for the fall or for the for the spring you ask this question, it's the million dollar question that no one will ever be able to ask because nobody knows the answer. When should your movie come out? Nobody knows. The only thing that How they did know. I you know I was just going to ask that question. I know. I know you were going to ask. <laughs> I could see it. Uh, it's only the natural next question to ask. I don't think anybody has any idea. And that is really the exciting part. We're all gamblers. And we all know, well, one thing we know well, is this, this summer. You, you have an idea of like what a, what a tentpole movie okay, is okay. for, yeah, you know, for to be, July 4th yes, or for Memorial yes, to be, Day. Yes, to be fair, you, you know, you know, but Christmas. it doesn't mean, what it, but it doesn't guarantee success. That's true. But you do have an idea, for example. But Wedding Crashers wasn't going to be July 4th weekend, you know, against Independence no, Day. No, or, but or, we did come out, but for example, we did come out July 15th which is a big tentpole release date. So would you say when I made Wedding Crashers, what I said to you, this should go out July 15th, I'd say you're absolutely crazy. I would have said the same Get thing. out of there. Get out. You better go, you and, know, and, October 10th. And you have no control. No control, except the movie was great. And so the, the whole concept of Wedding Crashers, which is what just happened to me with Echo, which we can get into later, but which was let's counter program and let's get all the young adults that are out of college for the summer to just get crazy and go over and over and over to see wedding crashers again, once again, a gamble. Now you take a movie like Spider-Man, which is less of a gamble, but even, but even for them, it's a gamble because it's what date in the summer are you going to go? Are you going to be the first tent pole or is that too early? Are you going to be in the middle or are you going to get scrunched? Or are you going to come to the end when there's fatigue? So there's, so yes, you can determine if a movie is technically a tentpole, but then where do you put that tentpole? Because there's another tentpole coming out the week after you and the week before you. So I'm fascinated by the distribution conversation. We can talk about this for days, the distribution conversation, only because I think there is like a slight art to it, but the art is in energy. And so... You can't run the numbers because energy dictates how it's going to go in the summer. So I had a movie once come out where there was a tragedy that happened three weeks before it came out. And I had one in Serendipity. We had um, the World Trade Center literally happened when my movie was coming out. And we were the first movie to come out. And it was based in New York um, after the World Trade Center disaster. What happened with the people who had had... 
invested millions and millions of dollars in campaigns for movies to come out. What did the movie business do? I don't remember that during that time. Did they just pull all their movies? And yeah, leave? I think I think if I remember correctly, Sarah, we were the first movie to have a per- film premiere after World Trade Center. We had to do some shifting, and I, if I if I can rem- I can't remember specifically if we moved a date. We might have all moved. I think we did. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a movie called I think Collateral Dam. I can't remember yeah, what it was. Like he moved. Onto our date. And what happened was we had a great, oh no, that's not true. That's not true. Sorry. We were going up against that movie and training day moved on to our date, which then went on to be huge and win an Academy Award. And we did really well with Serendipity, but it just goes to show you that, you know, not to use the World Trade Center as an example, because it's, it's the biggest tragedy we've ever had in this country, but what it goes to show you is nobody knows what the energy of the world's going to be like when your movie's coming out. So we had a movie that won an Academy Award that was critically acclaimed, move on to our date when we had a, a, a much better date and a much better situation bef- before the World's Trade Center. So the point to that story is I always look at a release date like, well, it seems great. Let's wait and see what happens. Got it. So I think Wedding Crashers is, is the kind of movie uh, that the uh that really people will want to talk about. I know uh, Van Wilder came before that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, which was a National Lampoon title, which is kind of uh, surprising because at the time, National Lampoon, and up until this day, has never seemingly gotten their act together uh, from the days of Animal House. The brand was certainly, uh, if it wasn't dead, it was on life support. Why do you decide that you're going to rally around a movie that has the above the title of National Lampoon? And how the hell did you make that movie a success when all other National Lampoon movies before it, after the big ones, had done so poorly and the brand had suffered? Well, this is really uh, what this is. You're going to find this very interesting. So. I, Van, that's, that's the hope. Yeah. Once again, another great question, and you'll find this to be an interesting answer, I think. We, like, you know, nowadays, even now I look back, I'm always talking about branding today and how it's getting harder and harder, and you better start really attaching yourself to brands. I was, I'm now when I look back, now that you bring up this question, I think, wow, I guess even then it was just as important as it is today. And we just, we're always living in a different, you know, we, we're always thinking, oh, it's today. But the reality is it was just as important then. Van Wilder, um, we went out and seeked National Lampoon and actually bought the label and made a deal with National Lampoon to attach to Van Wilder because. So in other you words, know, you brought in National Lampoon. Yeah, we. They, it was never made with National Lampoon. That was but, after. But what was the value Why? of National Lampoon at that point in time? Because Van Wilder had, we were not, we had no brand. We had no, we were with a small studio, Artisan at the time, now Lionsgate. So we couldn't say Artisan's National Lampoon. It didn't have the value that National Lampoon at least had, it said, 
brand and it looked good with the title. Once again, Van Wilder now is a brand, but at the time meant nothing. So for those of you who uh, don't know how this works, uh, Andrew and his company would go to uh, National Lampoon and they would say, we want to license your name for the above the title of this. And the National Lampoon's lawyers would say, okay, we want a million dollars. And then uh, Artisan would say, we'll give you $100,000 and 10% of the movie. And then National Lampoon will say, well, we want $750 plus 25%. And then you go back and forth. And most likely, they probably settled on a quarter of a million dollars and maybe between you know 10% or 20% of, of the movie. And National Lampoon has no say, no word, no nothing. They're just licensing the brand, and that's it. That's correct. Well, yeah, you're pretty good. Yeah, you're very good. That's that's in the ballpark, you know. If I if I can remember correctly, but that's exactly it. We licensed the brand. At that point, we actually brought back. back I think National Lampoon at the time really wanted to to come back. But I think you, I think ultimately. What the 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 bottom line of the story, I think, for any brand or anything that you're built, it all it's all about the creative. No matter mm-hmm. what brand you stick over, whatever title, I think what National Lampoon even has today is if I still think if they pumped out great product, the brand still has value. Um they had all that pedigree with the Chevy Chase movies and the vacation movies. And, you know, and then Van. Van brought it back again, and it felt good. It felt right, the National Lampoon over the Van Wilder title. So you have a Van Wilder movie, which I believe the budget, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was was no uh, less than $10 million, no more than $20 million, I don't think. And and yet the studio, to promote the movie, the P&A, you know, we're talking about the posters all over the country, the right. the ads that are on television, the radio, the internet. We're spending more money than the actual movie right. costs, right. which is a fascinating thing. Does that happen often? Yeah, it just happened with Echo, with my new movie, Earth to Echo. But you're going to talk about yeah, that, which too. Yeah, we'll I can't get into wait that. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, did you know Van Wilder was going to be a hit? Uh, you know, when we tested it in 95, I think, then I, I thought we had... We had something special in '95. You mean a 95 percent? Oh, 95 percent. Like we had. Remember that test screening yeah. thing we were talking about? Well, we scored a 95 percent A plus, and I saw the audience like losing their mind and screaming at the screen and just absolutely. And I thought, oh, maybe we, maybe we were right. Maybe this is as funny as we think. And so, to me, that was like Excuse the precursor me. to the tone of Wedding Crashers. Very to me, much. Once you, if I were a betting man. Once you were there and went through the experience of Van Wilder, I would have thought to myself, okay, this works here. It made this amount of money. It wasn't a $100 million movie, but it made something, and I had no names in it. Right. Imagine what I could do if I could get a movie that had that kind of tone with huge stars. God, if I could get that together. That's true. Be huge. That's true. So you spend the next year or two developing and you finally find Wedding Crashers. Where do you find it? From my head. From your head. So that was your idea. Same same with Van Wilder, right? So Van Wilder. Same with Echo. Same with Echo. 
Now, Van Wilder was created the weekend She's All That Open. Is your nickname Story By? <laughs> yeah. Andrew Story yeah. By Panay? It's funny. I, I I never really took it. I used to just give them, give them, give my stuff up to the writer. I noticed you got a little smart this time around. I, I yeah, this time we were going <laughs> to, we were going to do the appropriate thing this time. Yeah. I, I wonder if it has anything really to do rough. with the name of your company now is, let yeah. me see, uh, Panay Films. Yes. It might have yes. something to do with it. Yes, this time we... You know, the funny thing is, it still takes a village and it still takes a group. But I think one of the things that I wanted people... I wanted it, I wanted people to know that... That the kind of... The way I built my company and the way that I uh, built my career... It's kind of weird to say career now, but it's been a while. We were just talking about it offline that I kind of can't believe that... I, you know, you still, no matter what age or no matter how much you've done in your career, you're moving so quickly and you never feel like you've ever won a championship or been to an all-star game. And I'm starting to understand, and I would never compare myself to these, some of the greatest athletes in the world, but like, I'm, I'm always looking at these guys. I'm like, isn't one championship enough or two or three? No, five, six, no, they want to keep, and you start to realize that, oh, I see that it's for for any star athlete or any successful human in anything that you do i it, it really does feel like something you always want to get back to doing which is excellence right and it's true and but sports right. is an amazing metaphor so, for our business because like you mentioned you know sometimes you just don't feel like you you're a champion you just don't feel like you you wonder to yourself does doc rivers does he feel like he's a championship coach. Well, inside he has to know that he's got the goods, but he's been coaching for, I think over 10 years, he's got one ring, which amazingly, if you are a sports fan to know how difficult it's a great, uh, example for film in the NBA, I believe there's over 30 teams. Okay. Uh, you guys can Google this. I think there's only four coaches or five coaches in the NBA that have a championship ring, and there's 25 or more coaches who don't have one. That means 25 out of 30 teams don't have a leader who's been a champion. And the ones, and there's two of them I can think of: Rick Carlisle for Dallas, who's won one; Doc Rivers for the Clippers, who's won one. Two of them that I can think of off the top of my head have only won one. Right. And then there's Eric Spolstra and then there's... Eric um, Spolstra's won two. Won two. And then the Spurs coach, right? Yep. Greg Popovich, Popovich has won right? five. Five. And then I don't even know who else is coaching that has one. No. So uh, other than guys that have that have that are player coaches now, yeah, right? Or the, the Derek Fisher now and and then yeah. there's um Jason Kidd, right? Yeah. So in film it's the so. same thing. It's like there's there's certain people who do always keep winning, you know, and we all know who they are. You know, Jerry Bruckheimer, Neil Moritz, Neil Moritz right. Joel Silver, they tend not to lose that many times as producers. No, they go to the, they go to a lot, or they go to a lot of championship games. There, there's no, That's right. those guys are, you know, the best in the business and Scott Rudin. And Scott Rudin. But one area of our world that it's hard to find somebody who is like the Greg Popovich or Phil Jackson of is comedy filmmaking. Comedy filmmaking 
if you can find somebody who's had $500 million comedies that they produced or 10, please find them for me. Yeah. Because comedies, if you think about it, those of you who are listening, think about just, if you will, just think about the last five years. And if in 30 seconds you can think of five movies that have made over $100 million that are comedies, please tell me what they are. It's a very difficult thing. And the fact is, is no one... On, on, on my side of the business, when I think about it, I really don't understand why that is. I mean, because people want to laugh. They want to have a good time. It's hard to conceive that there wouldn't be more comedy movies. Yeah. Like, here we are this year. Um, we've been in this year six months. Okay. I pose this question to you. I don't expect you to know it. How many hundred million dollar comedies have been there been this year? Neighbors. Right? Neighbors. So there's one. I don't think Tammy's going to get to 100. Doing well, though. Doing well. This year. Oh, See tough. what's happening here? So That's tough. Does anybody out here know of any movie? Is there this another year one besides Neighbors? Any of our producers? Anybody in our esteemed audience? Anybody? No, that Ari, was last has year. Has Neighbors made 100 million? That was last year. Uh, it's not fine. I'll look it up. Yeah, it's in the 120 or 30 or something. Anything? Oh, oh 20, 22 Jump Street. 22 Jump Street. Great. Action so, comedy. Action comedy. So you see, it's it's a very difficult world to do, you know, to, to, to make it. Uh, and you've been in that world. And so Wedding Crashers, you get involved with it. Tell me how it comes about, if you can, in like five or so minutes, how you, you put it all together, you come up with the idea do you know in your head right away? Do you visualize in your head? You know, when I interviewed Patty Jenkins, who directed and wrote Monster, she had in her mind that she wanted Charlize Theron. That was the person she wanted. Everybody told her she was crazy. You know, you only have like a million dollars, and and if you get Charlize, she's going to want more. You'll probably get $3 million more, but you'll never get her. But she wanted her, and she got her. When you were thinking of the idea, did you think Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn, or who were you thinking in your mind? Well, the true story of that was, uh, you know, originally I had started pitching the idea with um, all those, that whole group in mind. So Will Ferrell or Owen and Vince and that sort of, uh, that that those are the guys at that time that were... Um, you know, making all those really funny comedies, the, you know, the Ben Stillers and whatnot. And they did old school together. It was kind of the, whatever Todd Phillips was doing. I mean, he's really the true genius of the starter of all this. I believe this kind of, uh, this run that, that started, I always say that to Todd. I mean, if it wasn't for old school, there would be no wedding crashers period. And for those of you who, uh, so, uh saw old school as an example, if you are an actor or, or an actress out there, you don't have to have the biggest role in the movie to steal the movie. Oh, right. Oh, no question. And Will Ferrell was with a bunch of big-time funny guys, and he just, uh, uh, I don't want to say that they didn't do a great job, because they did, but every take he had, every moment he had on film, and if you are an actor and you are listening and you are on a set, 
and you're thinking, okay, well, as long as I just get one take, one great take. Well, the fact is, if you're not directing your film and you're not producing your film, then you can't guarantee that that take you like is going to be the take that gets in. So when you're working with people you have no control over, every fucking take has to be holy shit. And one after the other to where even if they pick the one that's the fourth best that you did, it's still better than anybody else's. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, those those guys, I mean, he was a genius in that. And, and Vince with the earmuffs and all that. I mean, he's, <laughs> and he's a genius. But they're all geniuses. I think really the truth story is that I went to Greg Silverman and uh, Warner Brothers and he, Greg said, listen, what, go to UTA and meet with these agents and try to get Vince Owen and Will Ferrell attached. And I did. I went and they said, yes, and we were like, okay. So, uh, it didn't work out at Warner brothers, ironically. And, but Greg is one of my closest friends and a guy that we made a movie together when we were younger. Do you feel like it didn't work so, out at Warner brothers? Because when you're dealing with Vince and Owen and Will, who actually ended up doing more of a cameo in the movie, yeah. Um, because probably the money wasn't there. You're, you're talking about guys who their agents were trying to get them. I'm saying trying. Yeah. Trying to get them $20 million a film. Yeah. Uh, so chances are with the two of them, Owen and Vince, there was probably a package deal. Maybe each one of them made between 10 and $15 million at the time. And uh, even if they made less, then they maybe got a, more of the back end or whatever it was. And, and and Will was a piece of the puzzle. You just there probably wasn't enough room financially. So is that why Warner Brothers dropped out because the money was getting no, too high? You know, the, the, that would be the normal course of action, I think. But I think it, in this case, I think it was a conceptual thing. I just and more of a but I think there was probably some financial, you know, situation. I just think this was all it was a creative decision, honestly. I remember, really? if I'm not mistaken, you tell me if I'm wrong here, about uh, uh, Greg Silverman. I remember having a conversation about comedies with them at Warner Brothers. Uh-huh. I believe uh, Malibu's Most Wanted mm. was around that time. That was Greg's movie, I think, if I'm not. Yes. I and think. so the movie itself, if you remember, was a movie that Nick Swartzen uh, wrote. He actually, uh, for those who don't remember my podcast, he wrote it on a notebook, hand wrote the, sc- hand wrote the screenplay on a notebook. And it ended up getting made and uh, with Jamie Kennedy. And the movie made about, at the box office, between 35 and $40 million. It was a low-budget movie. And in DVD at the time, huge aftermarket. Yeah, it, it did made, well. It made really good money for Warner Brothers. When I say really good money, I'm talking about between 20 and $40 million extra with all the ancillary stuff. And I remember asking these guys why they don't want to do more comedies. And I remember this answer. Barry, when you're at a dinner party, um, what's more exciting to talk about? uh, Batman (laughs) or Malibu's Most Wanted? What's sexier to talk about? A movie that made, yeah, granted it made a profit, but this company wants to make hundreds of millions of dollars. Not 20 to 40 million. And that really shocked me because it wasn't something that was really, they were excited about. It just didn't feel like a, that kind of thing. Well, it's funny. I mean, here's the, the, the comedy about all this is the comedy is (laughs) that without Greg Silverman, no wedding crashers. That's the irony. And Greg and I made a short film together called on the line that ended up being the in sync movie years after we made it together. So we were that close. 
So isn't that ironic that, I mean, without Greg, there is no movie. He helped me put Wedding Crashers together, and he gets all the credit. Ironically, after that, he did a movie called The Hangover That's right. after, after Wedding Crashers and starring Bradley Cooper, who was in Wedding Crashers. So ironically, uh, Greg, who was a believer in of Wedding Crashers, then got to benefit even more because he went off to make the biggest comedy franchise of all time. So kudos to him. I think maybe at the time it was just a creative decision, not by Greg, but by the higher ups on Wedding Crashers. So Greg has always been a comedy guy. And that's what I love about him so much is this guy's got, he has so much conviction that he went on and said, you know what, I'm going to go do the hangover now for, you know, the same, if not lower price than we did wedding crashes and wedding crashes was at a low budget. Um, and then now he's got the biggest comedy franchise of all time. So and that's kind of, that's, what's incredible about him as a president at Warner brothers now is that he's probably the most giving guy I've worked with, which is like, no, you go take wedding crashers and go make it happen. So and he's been gracious ever since then. Every, um, he's always been that way. I, I, I took it to New Line right after that. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you guys think? You know, now remember, now remember, Wedding Crashes at the time was still, what is this thing? You know, to be fair to the higher ups at Warner Brothers or anybody else on this movie, it's like, what? I mean, two guys crashing weddings? What but it was your about? idea. Yes. So if it's your idea, that yeah. means you witnessed yeah. or you were a guy who crashed weddings. I, oh, you know, once like in college or, or right out of college, I like wandered into a wedding and I was like, what is this blowout? I was in Vegas and it was an accident and I was with a friend of mine. I was like, this is a great time. Then we started hanging out with the people at the wedding, but it wasn't. Now, did you, so, uh, did you get some action that night? I did not. Okay, I did not. Which is, you know, which was common at that time <laughs> in my life. Was, nice to know things are changing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too into that, but it was a real rough time <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> Uh, Look, if I had your style, I, I'd be. I'd, I'd never have to leave my house. <laughs> I'd just be calling. What a people. compliment! What a compliment! I I feel that you know where I can sit around and and do the hindsight thing. You know where people are like, you know, wedding crashers seems so obvious to me. Tonally, it had, the movie had to be mastered in order for the movie to really work. And David Dobkin, who directed it, I mean, he's a genius. And but we had discussed the tones, and we wanted to do a white collar comedy, which was a little more elegant to balance the ridiculousness of the concept. Now, was that going to work? I don't know. You know, one of the things, you, you know, it's interesting. Everybody has something they remember from a movie or, or, or moments. Mel Brooks used to say, and I, I got to sit down with him only one time, unfortunately. And he, he used to say that um, if he had seven water cooler moments, which I like to call holy shit moments in a 90 minute movie, in a comedy, he felt he had a hit. Now, that's not true today, but back then it was. And there's, to be honest, as I'm sitting across from you, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed to tell you that there's only one moment that really, like, I remember from the movie consistently. And I don't know what this says about me as a person, but it's Vince Vaughn and Isla Fisher sitting at the dinner table with the parents and she is like basically giving him a hand job right. underneath the table. Right. And his reaction and the parents and not knowing what's going on. Right. To me, like, I don't know what it was about that thing, but when that happened, you actually visualized. See, in every comedy movie, I think the most important thing to visualize for me is that everything in life 
has happened. Everything that you see in a movie that's not like fantastical, that's set in reality, you know has happened at one point in time. Right. Everything that Will Ferrell did in old school, you know some person before that has done that or figured it out. So I just visualized when I saw that scene thinking to myself all across the world in America, I know this has happened before, but no <laughs> one's ever put it on camera. Yeah. And, wow. and that always moved me. Maybe it's because I had hoped it had happened to me one time, but it didn't. But uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to say it's based <laughs> off my life experiences. But You're I, not, but... Uh, well, well, no, not that I can remember. Okay. But I, but I, <laughs> but I can say that I can say that, uh, you know, we, we know in a, in a comedy, I, what I like about Wedding Crashers and some of the other stuff I've done is the commentary that goes on in between those big scenes. But I know that audiences need really the big scene in order to comment on, on what's going what on in the What was the film. commentary between Vince and so, Isla during, I always think that this, this, this thing that I, I heard one time, uh. Uh, it was kind of a funny thing. It was like, I hope I can get this right. Um, it's what the uh, the A-list actor says to the starlet before the closed set love scene. Don't be offended if I get excited and don't be offended if I don't. <laughs> that's funny well so I, here I, this beautiful girl is like doing the scene and to do a take in a movie it's not just one take yeah, yeah. i mean there's just like over and oh. over and over again so what were they saying during well that scene? let's just say let's just say it was you know there it was incredible performances i mean you know, so <laughs> there was there was there was uh you know there there are doubles involved and and also there were you know we did a lot of the really the the scene just takes place above the table really the rest of that is just cutting to you know hands that the performance what was genius about it is that it's not happening yet they're able to perform it and like the harry met sally moment yeah it's such brilliant stuff and and also they're all comedic geniuses really now that's i'm surprised characters. you said that because this no. is the thing like i i would think if i'm isla fisher to get the performance out of Vince, even though you know you're going to be yeah. shooting doubles underneath the table. Right, right. I'm surprised that Dobkin right. didn't take her aside and say, listen, I'm going to do this last take here. I want you to go reach for under it. the table and <laughs> go for it. Yeah, yeah, that that would that's a producer's dream, but that's not that didn't happen. <laughs> okay, just that checking. didn't happen. Yeah. All right. So, so when do you know that that movie is going to be? A, a juggernaut is going to be like one of the biggest comedies of all time. Um, I, not until not until maybe third weekend of opening when the movie went up or stayed the same. I think uh, we went to number one at that point. I could see maybe this thing is really going to run, but you never no creative is secure enough to ever believe that their movie is going to be a juggernaut that I always go into it going, I'm going to make great product. I want to make great product, and I believe this is a great movie. I have that kind of confidence because as a creative, there's no way you can lead I with your idea. I don't believe—I'm going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with no, you No, go here. ahead. I don't believe you. Yeah. I know that if I present you with a list of every movie you made— You're right. I know—I hope you don't jump over the couch and strangle me no, here. No, no. I know— that when you saw the test screening of the comebacks, 
right. and you saw the test screening right. of Wedding Crashers, no question I know about that. that if I have a true serum in your veins, you're going to say, yeah. I don't think I have as good a movie here. Right. Well, that's true. But I can say, let's say you take the comebacks. When I made the comebacks, it was like a one weekend movie. That That's what when we I wanted to do. The, the sports spoof it was something that they, they put me on at Fox. I thought it was hysterical to do a sports spoof, but I knew it was a one weekend movie. That I can tell you, yes. No, no what question. What is a one weekend movie? Meaning I, I didn't believe that that kind of movie would have legs. That's a specific audience that comes out to see it so that weekend. Words, so in other words, what you're saying, certain movies you take to get a check and certain movies mm-hmm. you take to do no. for respect. Actually, that's, why would you get involved with a one weekend movie? Well, I, I think I'm not, I think I'm, it's probably being a bit unfair. W- what I meant by that is that I don't, I think that there's a certain audience that runs out to a horror movie and a certain audience that goes to a spoof movie that w- rushes to the theater first week. That, that's where you make a lot of your money. And I don't, I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the comedy. I thought it was hysterical to make fun of sports just in general. So I did it for the love of it, of the game. You, you know, you don't, I didn't, I don't think you can even make enough money on a movie, uh, a sports spoof per se to take it for a check. I think I did it for fun and because I believed in it and I believed that it would be a blast for that particular audience. Like again, more like a horror movie audience that is, is, um, is, dedicated to that sort of film. So for the spoof going audience who loves those movies, I was like, let me give it to them. And then I tried to aspire on that movie to go more naked gun, which is, can we run a little, but knowing that, knowing that most likely it will be a rush to the theater opening weekend, wedding crashers going back to wedding crashers. I thought I had something special, but juggernaut again, that's magic. You know, I can't, tell because it all everything has to be accidentally everything has to fall into place accidentally this again a movie has to bomb behind you there has to be no other comedy coming in that's incredible you can't have people's emotions move to a different place like the world cup comes in and takes over your saturday so my kids uh who are uh, nine and eight right um one, Core of, my, demo. one of my kids uh went to see echo and loved it while the other kid was at camp and begged um, him and me to see it this weekend. Okay. And um, I had uh, forgotten that this was a movie that you'd worked on. And we went to see the movie. And for those of you listening, you have to see this movie because it's it's something that it's just something really special because it's a movie where you don't know anybody in the cast you don't really know what to expect and it's almost like an experimental film that looks like a huge studio film it's almost like if E.T. meets Cloverfield. Exactly. Right. And it's it's just something really, really unique. There's things happening in it that you're like, oh, my God, is this the example I want to set for my kids? <laughs> um, but it was really, really, really special. And at the end of the movie, I'm, you know, my kids always have this thing, and I always have this fight with them because I'm in the business to stay through the credits. And the minute the movie ends, they're standing up, Daddy, let's go. 
Let's go. Let's get it. It's boring. <laughs> Credits are boring. I'm like, there's people here. <laughs> and of course, you know, story by Andrew Panay, produced by Panay Films, producer Andrew Panay, single credit producer. I just was just blown away by it. And I, I, I want you to share uh, with our audience your concept for this movie and how you got it made with complete unknowns and get it in the theaters in a bazillion theaters. And how do you do that? Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it, you know, you know what? It goes back to the same thing. It I'll always, it always goes back to the creative, the movie, you know, is really good stuff. Like I'm so proud of the film. I uh, I also thought it was just really different and very unique, and we need that kind of thing. And I can pitch it with such conviction. Um, it's it's almost crazy because you're right. There's no stars. There's no brands. There's no anything. It's a raw uh, experiment that has a connection for kids that where they lose their minds. The irony is that parents love it just as much. It, I don't. Um, and that's been the the part of the film that's been interesting is to convince the parents that it's just as much for them. I mean, it, it's such a journey for and a thriller for for parents. Um, I think Echo came from I was on a run one morning and I came up with this idea very simply, like if E.T. happened today or Goonies, what would happen? Well, they the kids would document the experience as we all are now documenting our experiences, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. So I thought, well, if E.T. was shot today or Goonies or Stand By Me, well, they would document everything that they were doing. That simple, period. Now it's about connecting the emotion to this idea. Uh, at that point, we started building out the story, and I found these two young guys had never done anything. Uh, they were uh, guys that had shot a short for William Morris making fun of their agents, <laughs> agency. And I thought it was well cut, well done brilliant i met them they were first timers and i these are my guys and i had gone out to and been talking to all kinds of experienced filmmakers and i felt like and the guys who built echo were designers out of design i think they're still in school 20 21 years old so i did something that i got out of my comfort zone got out of the big cats and i decided i'm gonna get real dirty here and we're gonna do something very unique and inspiring and let's see if it if it if we can shoot the movie with that kind of inspiration will it come through again besides having good storytelling skills and good director and all those things from the, the team around me because the truth is the director dave green and the writer henry gaden they're geniuses and i and with my team i thought if the spirit of the guys behind the camera could come out in front of the camera we might have something special and at that point we shot it with Disney when uh, I was at Disney at the time. And I think that it was, you know, didn't fit the Disney slate um, it, as much as the movie, as good as the movie is and as much as they love the movie. So at that point, uh, they said, hey, listen, Andrew, you know, we we do love the movie. We think it's good, you know. And so I asked if I could take it to relativity. Seems to be a running theme. So. Yeah, people saying no to you, Andrew. Yeah, and I'm not taking no for an answer. Yeah. and moving to the I don't next think room. you can ever quit, you know. And I don't think 
Disney quit or anything. I think that everyone's got a business plan and I have to, and here's the thing that's important for everyone listening home. It's not personal. You have to respect the business models and of people's lives and of their companies. And it, it may not always fit. It's not a knock on me creatively. Wedding Crashers didn't fit certain studios at the time. It just didn't make sense. I know that. But if you had gone to your friend at Warner Brothers, Mr. Silverman, and said, I can see into the future and I can guarantee you with my life that this movie is going to gross $209 million right. domestically, right. and I can guarantee that a thousand percent he would have made that movie. But Greg, here's a trick. Here's the thing. Greg wanted to make that movie. His bosses would have made the movie. That probably correct, and he'd probably say that to you today, yeah. for sure. But what did he do since he went and curated his own? <laughs> That's right. And he went and beat... My record, right? <laughs> so th that's the, the 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 irony is that I think ultimately th um, everyone wins, and Disney won, and Relativity will win because everyone shares, and we go on. And I and the good news is, I think when everyone's coming from the right place, as much as I sound a Pollyanna, is that the right word? Like I have gotten to an age where maybe back when I was younger, I'd be like, you know what, I'm gonna. You know, that's it. I'm blazing. But, you know, I, I do realize that that people are going to say no. They have their reasons. I may not agree or I may agree that they should say no, but I'll find the place that I think fits. Um, and so relativity, I mean, I mean, they are they lead with their heart and they lead with their guts. I think they made a great decision. You know, I think the movie the movies, I'm really proud. You can feel that some of these kids are going to be big stars. Each one, you know, immediately that they were obviously the one kid who is the, you know, the heavier set kid. That's a specific type. You don't find a lot of guys like that. He out was there. a genius and absolute, but he was genius. brilliant. He was brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant, but there's less of those kids yeah. auditioning than the girl. Yeah. The girls were probably had more girls than anybody else auditioning. Right. So that was the right. toughest one. The girl book. was the toughest girl was the toughest. They were all tough. Uh, Astro, who plays Tuck, yes. is an absolute genius, without question, with the voiceover, yeah. with that, with the depth of yeah. his. He's very deep, deep kid, you know, very, uh, very spiritual. Uh, Reese, who plays Munch, the 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 kind of the kid with all the jackets, he's all a comedic genius. But and and then Teo as the lead. Well, they all were actually they're all equal leads. I feel I can't. Four days before shooting, we found these kids. I mean, we had no rehearsal Four time. Four days we before had, we, we were like, we are, we better, we're, we are in big trouble. And we, we, we are locked and loaded and we are going and we are going to find these kids. Why four days? We Why just couldn't find them. Like you were asking, oh, okay. like you, you were can, saying, couldn't find them. Yeah, it's hard Couldn't to find, find them, couldn't find Because this is what's weird. You know? It's like, so for those of you who know, want to know out there, this is what's crazy about casting kids. Every major agency, you think, hey, these are the people who are going to take care of us. Let's go to CAA. Let's go to William Morris. Let's go to uh, right. 
all the big ICM. They'll take care of us. We'll go to their big people. We're yeah. taking this movie. They don't have kids. Sometimes they do, but the kids they have are the you know at the time like the Haley Joel Osmots of the or the Jonathan Lenickys who'd already been in big movies. Right. The places that have the kids are these kids departments of these agencies that you've never heard of before. That right. aren't on the radar of the of the big agencies. So all these a big agencies, they don't have anybody normally like that. And if they do, it's a miracle. So he's got to go to agencies that you know, you know, like Ed's agency or these or Osbrink or or Abrams Artist or 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 all these agencies that might be in the top like maybe they might be in the top twenty, but they're number like eight to twenty. And it's hard to find. And yeah. but once you reach out to those people, uh, and at the last minute, that's where great things normally happen. Well, that's what's you know what I love about where I came from. What I love about your career and what you've done. One of the things for for people listening and you know out there is, you know, if you can always look at it like. You, you, you have nothing. If you start with nothing template and find it from anywhere and where you found Dane Cook in the middle of nowhere, where we found these kids in the middle of nowhere, it wasn't CAA, it wasn't William Morris, although William Morris helped, CAA helped. Everyone was involved, but, you know, it's sometimes how I've done my, how I looked at my career is like, I love my, I repped at William Morris by the best agents on the planet. I love them. And they're there to support and rock. But even them, and they'll say you, to you. Who are your best Adam, agents Adam, on Adam, Adam I love Adam Bennett. You know, Bennett's, without Bennett, you know, who moved the movie to relativity with me. I mean, it's an incredible agent. And by like Kimberly Bilek, who are my agents. They also are passionate and believe. But they also don't. They also believe that you can find things anywhere, any place. Because, I mean, Bennett built his career from the bottom up so anybody sandler right sandler by the way speaking of the comedy king you said who are the five right <laughs> he'd be what number one and only <laughs> right only guy and maybe judd apatow maybe the only two i don't want to get into that but offend anyone but there's only one guy who has that many 100 million dollar hits and it's adam but speaking and bennett raised this so bennett's also a believer from the ground up find it where you can find it and so uh, anything i can encourage everybody is that i don't care what agency i don't care what manager i don't care who it's from or where it's from if it's good it's good and so i think uh, i was at tapestry films olsen twins movies they did point break years ago prior they were scrappers and fighters, and they taught me, like, you can do anything from nothing. When I found Pay It Forward, the book came in, came from a friend of mine in a box, unpublished. Who am I? I'm just a kid. <laughs> that that A kid at the time, 25 years old. I love this book, Crying. Sold it to a former Touchstone executive who was now at Bel Air at Warner's. You know, she took my call. Who was I? relationships that's right you know so it, it it's but the main thing i go back to the same thing whether it's dean cook in north carolina or wherever <laughs> you grabbed him or whether it's pay it forward in a book in a box with no cover page it's believing in something no matter where it comes from or how it gets to you and i think whether it's wedding crashes after this 
you know, from my pea brain because I thought I had confidence because I did Van Wilder that I was taking a shower, getting ready to go to a wedding, and I thought it was funny that guys at weddings crashing girls to meet girls, you know, guys crashing weddings to meet girls was funny or Echo was see, a cool take, idea. See, when I'm taking a shower, I would think of a movie Tammy. Well, that well, so listen, that's, that's a different thing. But anyway. <laughs> Okay. Well, so, you'd have a hit. You'd have a hit I'd if you created hit. that That's idea. Right. So there you go. Um, okay. Word association. Ready? Go. Vince Vaughn. Genius. Donald DeLine. Kind. Ryan Cavanaugh. Trailblazer. Dane Cook. Funny. Helen Hunt. Good actor. Owen Wilson. Wow, a lot of words for Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson, uh, uh, well, genius. I already used genius, but, you know, innovator. Tapestry films. Smart. Uh, Hot Tub Time Machine 2. In Ridiculous. The works. Ridiculous. <laughs> Coming out of uh, December 25th. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> Lance Bass. Awesome. Panay Films. Innovative. Cool. All right. Tell me your biggest disappointment in show business. Probably, you know, not getting a ring when I made Pay It Forward. It's probably my, my biggest heartbreak, I would say going to the premiere, pay it forward and not feeling a part of something that I started, found, developed, um, to no fault of anyone, but just being a young guy, no one to blame or anything, just a moment in time where my life changed. And I realized that, you know, I, I had a knack for this stuff because my movies were getting made. So it was time to start really protecting myself. Um, and I know Peter and Robert really wanted to take care of me, so it wasn't about them. I think it was just about the system. But it was probably the most biggest disappointment in my career. Um, and I can say that with a smile in a way, not because I'm like laughing at it or laughing about it, but more that I think it was my greatest learning experience as well. I think if I was to go back in time, it probably had had the same outcome. I don't think anything would have been different. It was just a learning experience that I never wanted to feel again, um, which was to create something and not necessarily speaking of sitting through credits on that movie. I got a special thanks, but I didn't do anything different with pay it forward than I did with any other movie that I did. So that night was really eye opening for me. And I remember it like it was yesterday and it was a real tough night other than the fact that I was proud of the movie. It was just, I realized at that point I wasn't an executive. I was a true producer finding stuff from the ground. Um, What's fascinating about this for all of you producers listening and all these studios, you know, credits, they don't cost any money. And when you don't give credits out to people who do the work, it can crush their will but the good news is, similarly to you, um, I feel like I had a part in helping with Half-Baked 
with Dave Chappelle, Jim Brewer, and Neil awesome Brennan. Awesome movie. Awesome movie. And I didn't even get a special thanks. Yeah. So, uh, and that drove me, and it looks like Pay It yeah. Forward drove you. I, ironically, the movie was called Pay It Forward. That, that's the irony. <laughs> uh, I remember writing a letter to an executive who will not remain, who will remain unnamed, who is no longer with us. And I remember writing him a letter. I said, in the spirit of the movie, you know, I, I think this is the correct thing. Now, my guys, you know, w- were fighting for me at the time. Uh, and so... Peter and Robert were fighting for me at the time. And there was one particular individual who didn't see fit. And I it thought it was disrespectful. And I remember writing the letter to this day. I still have the letter and a friend of mine helped me write the letter. Um, and I love him for that. And I remember writing the letter that day thinking, you know, I'm going to do this because what do I have to lose? Um, but I do have my special thanks. So I always sit through my movie credits and look at the people who they gave thanks to, because I can tell you that, there's a lot of, sometimes there's one or two people that are probably missing from the scenario that had a lot to do with it, if not most to do with it. So that would be my greatest disappointment, although it might be my greatest victory, really. Just like maybe Half-Baked was yours. Yeah, I think it was you your know? greatest victory. Uh, your proudest moment in show business? Funny enough, probably, um, probably... A quiet, maybe maybe MTV Movie Awards, Wedding Crashers. I was with you that night, you, I believe. You, you were. You were. And I remember right before you, were. you went out to accept the award. And it's so... It, That's so weird, but I remember so, that it, moment, actually. You were just... It was like the weirdest thing because yeah. you were flanked between your two head guys. Yeah, yeah. And you were in the middle, and they were like... Not that they're that big, but they were towering over you, and they were wearing these nice suits. And there, I was and wearing, wearing this, like, leather, hip, cool it was, leather yeah, it was, outfit. I, it was so hysterical, right? And you were wearing these jeans that were bell-bottoms and, yeah. like, ripped at you the remember, bottom. You remember. I remember this I moment. I can't believe it. Because uh, I, you, I say, how you, you doing? And, you, and we're you, about were, to get this award. Were we right backstage? Where were we? We were backstage. You're about to, we're about to get this award. And then I hear your name being called and you're like, I'll see whatever. And you're walking out. And I can't believe that I was actually there for your proudest moment. That means That's a lot That's so me. cool. Wow. Yeah. I, I think why? Because I thought that if you're ever going to win an award for a movie like Wedding Crashers, you take the MTV Movie Award <laughs> and that popcorn. You know, I had a blast. I had a blast. I'll take it any day. Now I'll take a popcorn probably, any day. Now you're probably using it as a doorstop in your well, room. Well, I, you know, let's get Hot Tub Time Machine to that award. And uh movie's funny. I can't wait for people to see it. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Almost there. Tell me one story. You're just, you're, you're in, in your production career, the, the biggest holy shit moment in that the, would be the highlight chapter of your book. Something fucking crazy that no one knows. I, I think that, I think it's now, maybe not when it was happening, but now looking back, it's hysterical. It was, how am I standing on the set with John Travolta, Robin Williams, <laughs> right? What is going on? You know, where where on earth do I deserve to be standing here with a movie that I created with these two giants? And and then there was a scene that hasn't no one seen with Bradley Cooper and the two of them because Bradley and I are very close and we love each other very much. And we, you know, he's always doing something for one of my movies. And Coop was there and he did a scene with them. And I thought I remember thinking and he would walk off the set. Uh, this is before Hangover. And we were just talking about, what are we doing? How rad is this? 
two giants, two of the best in the biz. And, and then what are we doing here? Um, and to always step back and still to this day, no matter what I'm doing and where I'm at, I'm always wondering what on earth am I doing here? But there are these moments at times where you step out and think, I don't belong here. I was watching you win Academy Awards when I was a kid. Like, I don't, what am I doing in your trailer? Like writing scenes. Um, but I think that it was when I was in those guys' presence, like guys that are big cats, guys that have been doing it for you know, longer than I can even remember the film business and being so, they were so professional and awesome. Um, and then I'm having my friends, like come in and out and play, have playtime, my buds, you know? <laughs> and so I think that was sort of the moment, one of my moments where I stopped and thought, and maybe day one of Wedding Crashers, you know, you say, when did you know you had something? I would just say that I was standing there with the two guys and I'm like, how did this happen? This is crazy. Like these, these guys, you know, we're behind the monitor crying of laughter, thinking, did I really come up with this idea? This is crazy, right? Um, and to this day, even, uh, and, and maybe the, 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 I would say that probably, and then I would say if there was a third, it'd probably be Echo being out in theaters right now, being watching people lose their minds or cheering when the movie's over. I think that's crazy. It's crazy to see people cheer for a movie that is an underdog um, just in, from day one uh, to see people cheer in, in theaters, um, you you can never take that stuff for granted. So that would be sort of the run. Cool, awesome. Yeah. I, you mentioned Bradley Cooper. You know, I think to myself, you know, I've seen him in so many things, and unbelievably, the moment that that moved me the most was uh, was that dramatic movie he did, the Virgin produced first movie about the pill. Oh, right, amazing. Just limitless, limitless, yeah. just insanity. Yeah. Last question. Uh, what advice do you have for the young executive out there who starting with a group of people in a pit somewhere and an intern or whatever the company to move up to, right. to be in a position where they can own their own company and run their own business? And what advice do you have for the young talent out there, like the four kids that you saw for Echo or right. anybody out there who's an actor who's struggling and uh, and wants to get to the next level? Well, I think today's a lot different than it was when we were coming through the ranks. But there's two ways I would go about it. Uh, number one, get in the system. Get into an internship. Get an assistant job. Don't be afraid to get coffee. We all did it. Do it with enthusiasm and know that you're lucky to be getting coffee for Barry Katz. You're lucky to be getting, you're lucky because you're around people that have built something from nothing and you can learn so much. So number one, get into the system and never complain about that. It's a, it's an honor. And it's very hard to look at it like that when you're not making that much money and you're getting coffee. But the truth of the matter is you're around art and creative stuff that's happening per second that most people in the world will never get to see movies that came from somebody who just was walking the halls one day and decided they were going to create whatever movie it is or whatever artist you found or so that one I'd say get in the system Two, start shooting your own stuff it's a different time than when we were growing up the access is incredible you have the canon which we have here, you have the different digitals, um, you have an iPhone, you have the Nokia phone, you can do, you have the Microsoft Surface, which is my brother's product, you use a Surface, you can cut on a Surface, you can shoot on a Surface, you can do whatever you want out there to create your own movies and get it out virally. Within two seconds, it can hit the world, you know, and I think that 
so many people are, you know, spending time, um, outside of doing those two things. I think those are the only ways get in the system, in the farm system, so to speak, there's single A, double A, triple A, go through the ranks and, and go through it. And while you're doing that study and learn to grow up with your colleagues, like you and I doing employee of the month, I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago. Now we're colleagues. You call me up. I'll do anything for you. We did a movie together. We bled together. We had some weird, weird times together, hard times together, awesome times together, dealing with our actors, trying to work things out together, bonding over that. Same thing as young uh, talent that's in this room. It's like bond with these people, bond with your, so when you get into hard times or you need, you want me to come in and interview, it wasn't even a question. I responded with when does he want me? It's not, you know, what it's not. It's about the relationships, but you got to get in the farm system. And that would be my advice. Great advice. Great podcast. Your first podcast? My first podcast. All right. Well, thank you so much. You were so inspirational, and this is going to really mean a lot to a lot of people. So I can't believe how much time you spent here. I feel like I've. uh, this is time you'll (laughs) never get back. It's like a pack of cigarettes. You'll just never get this part of your life back. I appreciate being here. I I really love seeing you, and... um, I hope that if whatever I said today could be helpful, it's all, it's all pretty, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not very filtered. So hopefully none of this stuff comes to bite me in the butt later. But the, the truth is like, um, it's a raw business and it's an, and I think if you can stay honest and stay true, I think, uh, people can, you can do, you can really, and as cliche as it sounds, it's like you kind of can do anything because there are no rules. So I think that you can, um, I think the audience out there just to know that someone like me who had no family connections or anything like that, that can create something from nothing means I, almost anybody can do it, to be honest. So, Well, you've proven that and uh, our audience is going to see it. And uh, Andrew Panay, thank you. You are the man. <laughs> I'm so grateful. So appreciative. Well, thanks thank for having so me. Much. And thanks. as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please... Tell all your friends, and if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory, I'll scream your name, put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain, it's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... 
please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.